Taking a look at uh, some health news and something that's happening, this is linked to, to an event that's taking place, and it goes back to a 1998 decision of the Supreme Court of Canada. And in that decision, it uh, ruled that people with HIV have a legal duty to disclose their status before engaging in sexual relations that pose a significant risk of transmitting the disease. And uh, there have been at least 184 people who allegedly failed to do this in Canada, and there have been charges laid in some cases. But what does this mean, and what is the fallout from this law and having this on the books? Well, Angela Cade joins me now, Canada Research Chair in Global Perspectives in HIV and Sexual and Reproductive Health in SFU's Faculty of Health Sciences. Angela, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, good morning. My pleasure. Uh, There's an event taking place. It's a community event as well, taking a look at this. So what exactly is going to be the focus of the event? Okay, thanks, Jill. Well, the focus of the event is actually very much linked to the Women Deliver Conference that's here in Vancouver, starting officially tomorrow. But the purpose of our event is really to uh, put a spotlight on laws in Canada that criminalize HIV non-disclosure and really to put a spotlight on how these laws have really devastating impacts for women living with HIV. And how so? Is it because because of women being charged or what are the, the devastating impacts? Yeah, it's, it is, it's partially about women being charged, but it's actually largely about the threat of being charged, living under the surveillance of the law. And because the law does not doesn't take into consideration anything about gender-based violence or the reasons why it might be very threatening to disclose HIV status um, or the reasons why discrimination um, that continues about HIV makes it extremely threatening and and worrisome for women uh, to disclose. And partially, one of the reasons, one of the ways we, we really have investigated this issue is through public health lens. And what we know is the most important thing is for people who are living with HIV to be engaged in care, to be on treatment. And when they're on treatment, they uh, suppress their viral load and they can't transmit HIV anyway. So any laws or any um, expectations of disclosure that keeps people from engaging in treatment is actually really harmful for individual health as well as public health goals. So if you were somebody that was HIV positive, but you were in treatment, and like you said, your viral load was so low that, that there wasn't the risk of transmission, would you still be required to disclose? Yes. I mean, this is what is so um, almost incomprehensible about the law. So what this, in 2012, the Supreme Court ruled that a person living with HIV is legally obligated to disclose their HIV status to sexual partners. And before sex that poses what they called a realistic possibility of transmission. And under the definition of the Supreme Court, they said that the duty to, to disclose is averted only when people use condoms as well as have a low viral load. Now, either of those criteria um, eliminate HIV transmission risk. So requiring both of them it has no scientific grounding.
So, but what about then uh, to to flip to the other side? If somebody finds out after the fact uh, that they've had sex with somebody who is HIV positive, what about protecting them and making sure? uh, Shouldn't they have the right to know? uh, And then, given the choice, well, now you know whether or not to continue with this. You know whether the importance of using a condom. You know the importance of protecting yourself because you are with somebody uh, with HIV. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a great question. And of course, I mean, you know, I think everybody would agree that a person living with HIV should be supported, should feel safe, should feel that they can disclose that they're living with, with HIV, and they should be able to do so um, under the circumstances that they need to do so. So um, I think the law is really put forward as if it protects people from acquiring HIV, but we have... 30 years of research evidence from jurisdictions where there are punitive approaches to non-disclosure and there are punitive approaches to non-disclosure. And actually, the law doesn't do anything to increase whether people disclose or not. And it doesn't do anything to increase whether people practice safer sex or not. Um, And it actually doesn't have any effect on reducing HIV incidence. So the, the, the question of whether we should be supporting people to disclose, for sure. Um, but criminalizing them for not, um, I think, is, is really what we're, what we're interrogating here. So what would be a better way of going about this to make sure that people aren't uh, passing on the virus but are still supported? Yeah, um, the, the most important thing, one of the most important things that we could do is to make sure that if people are living with HIV, that we encourage people to test for HIV. If they're living with HIV, to engage in care, to start treatment, um, so that they can um, their their viral load can be suppressed. They can live a long life expectancy, um, and they have there's they will eliminate their risk of transmitting HIV to a sexual partner. And anything that is interfering with that successful, what is really such a success story in the HIV response um, is, a, is a problem. And, and the way we're going to reduce, one of the important ways that we're going to reduce transmission is by supporting people to be in care. So is it a case of when we look at these court rulings, and the first one was a Supreme Court of Canada decision in 1998, uh, Mm -hmm. 2012, as you mentioned as well, the two decisions from the Supreme Court. Is it a case of the court decisions are now outdated, given where we are medically with HIV and being able to stop the spread of it? Yeah, definitely. It's a a case of the initial law, uh, the 2012 um, ruling of the, of the Supreme Court, we actually did have the evidence, the scientific evidence at that time as well, which um, many of us in the public health scientific community felt that the court did not appropriately consider that scientific evidence. Um, but certainly since the time of the ruling, the evidence about what we know in BC as treatment as prevention, um, the evidence about treatment as prevention has just increased. It's just expanded. Um, such that now we're talking about um, no risk of HIV transmission when a person living with HIV is on treatment and has an undetectable viral load. But what if somebody is not on treatment? Should they have to disclose? So I think that the the details of of the law right now are, are so blunt. So it's not about whether somebody who is on treatment or is on treatment should have to disclose. What we're, what, we're trying, what we're saying and what the scientific evidence is saying is that the criminal law is not the right strategy 
to support, if what we're looking to do is reduce the risk of transmission, the law is not the right strategy. So, and I, and I should have mentioned at the beginning that currently when we say that um, that HIV non-disclosure is criminalized, what that means is that somebody who um, is accused of not disclosing and not meeting this criteria of um, a realistic possibility of HIV transmission, the charge that is laid is aggravated sexual assault, which is one of the most serious and severe charges in our criminal code. It can result in imprisonment and mandatory registration as a sex offender. So I think it's, it's, the, it's the scale of what the charge implies. And I, I know this is going to be discussed uh, as, as part of this conference. And uh, what, so, but if it was decriminalized, then I guess the question is by decriminalizing it, how do you decriminalize but still keep people safe? Because even though it's much more, I mean, it's changed so much and it's not considered a death sentence anymore, it's considered more of a chronic mm-hmm. disease, uh, st- people still protect themselves from it, don't, don't want to be exposed to it. Of course, of course. I mean, I think a a really big part of what what you've already said is about protecting ourselves. So um, engaging in sex, engaging in safer sex is a mutual responsibility. So each of us has to take responsibility for our sexual lives and our sexual um, uh, decision-making and having conversations, testing, um, and and using the mechanisms that are available to protect ourselves against HIV um, and other sexually transmitted infections other unintended pregnancies. So really seeing this as a, as a mutual responsibility, um, not the responsibility of one person who might be imprisoned. So I think, you know, I think you make a great point, and, and I think emphasizing how important it is that sexual health is mutual responsibility. All right, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. Angela, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Joe, thank you so much too. Well, what a steal. Gas yesterday at a few stations dipped all the way down to a buck forty-nine nine. There were lineups for gas at that price. That in itself makes me shake my head. Uh, does the high price of gas factor in though if you are considering purchasing an electric vehicle? If you're thinking about it, well, you are not alone. Let's bring in Mario Conseco, president of Research Co., who has taken a look at this. Uh, Mario, good morning. Good morning, Jill. Great to be here. Thanks so much for being here to talk about this. So you asked people uh, if they are considering electric vehicles, and what did you find? Well, there's 51% of drivers who say that they think it is very likely or moderately likely that the next vehicle they buy for themselves or their household will be electric. Uh, This is a very high number. There's a high level of support for the vision of the BC government to make all of the vehicles, light uh, duty cars and trucks sold in BC zero emission by 2040. So definitely has a lot to do with that policy. But we also see that it has uh, some connection to the gas prices that we have to endure over the past few weeks and months. <laughs> and, and can we make the connection, though? It's easy for somebody to say, I'm thinking about it or I'm interested in that. But taking that and then actually doing it uh, are two very different things. Yeah, definitely. I think what we see here is a situation where there's a lot of people who are thinking about it. There are certain things that uh, can be considered hindrances. And what is fascinating to me about this is it really depends on where you live. Uh, There's certain people who say it's too costly. I can't buy an electric vehicle right now because it's considerably more expensive than a regular one. 
But if you live in southern BC or in northern BC, your number one concern is where am I going to charge this thing? I don't know if there's enough charging stations. I'm worried that I'm going to be driving somewhere. I run out of uh, electricity and then I'm stuck. Which seems like a valid concern. Was there a concern as well about winter conditions and when we get into different parts of the province that they get a lot more snow and cold temperatures in the winter? Um, No, that is something that didn't really come out. Uh, One of the issues, uh, more than anything, is uh, the idea that that there's not enough charging stations. And I think this definitely plays a role into what the government could do. I mean, they have this vision to turn us into a zero-emission province by 2040, but we still see that there's a lot of residents who say, I don't know where I can charge this, I don't know if this is going to be easy for me. So there's a little bit of a disconnect between the vision, which definitely a lot of BC residents want, and the actual reality of it. So a lot of work to be done to talk to residents about infrastructure projects and essentially tell them, look, you're not alone. There are charging stations near your area. You just need to find them. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, and I was thinking off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you the closest one to where I live. And, and that would be a barrier. Do you think, though, have we shifted? Is it now the... the uh, Anxiety over charging stations rather than range, people fearing that they would get stranded? It is more of that than anything else, particularly if you live in an area that is outside of Metro Vancouver. There's only 20% of Metro Vancouverites who say, I worry about not having charging stations. It's more about the price, which is also connected with the housing crisis and the difficulties that we have affording everything in Metro Vancouver. So for us, it's more of a consideration here, whereas when you go to southern BC, northern BC, they're more likely to say, what is going to happen to me if I run out of electricity and I can find a charging station? And, and what about price? Did you ask about that, even with the incentives that are out there as far as that being a barrier for people? Well, that is interesting as well, because there's not a lot of residents who are aware of everything that they get back. I think what we get from the survey is a lot of people who say, well, it's $10,000, $12,000 more expensive than the car that I would buy that runs on regular fossil fuels. Uh, But the reality is you could get up to $16,000 from three levels of government if you do this properly. So it's an important issue to think about. Uh, There might be somebody who's considering more of a low-end vehicle, and they would end up paying roughly the same after those rebates. So again, more information is required. Those rebates are there, but there's many residents who don't really know that they're uh, there for them specifically. So that's the, the, the rebate from the provincial and federal governments, but then you'd also have to have a vehicle in, that qualifies for the Scrap It program to get the full, full benefit, wouldn't you? Yes, exactly. You need Well, you could get up to 16000 if you have a vehicle that you're able to sacrifice, quote-unquote, and then you get your 16000 All right. Uh, were you surprised at all by the, the large number of people who said they are, in fact, considering this? Well, it is big. I think one of the issues here is if the province definitely moves quicker towards this, they're not really going to have a choice. If we're going to be having zero-emission vehicles by 2040, it takes uh, certain things to happen. One of them is having enough charging stations, making sure that people know that this is happening, and also essentially figuring out a way to turn this intention into reality. There's a lot of residents who say it would be nice to have an electric car, but if you're not aware of the rebates and you're worried about charging stations, you're not going to buy one. So this is something that I want to track over time, hopefully all the way to 2040. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's a key issue because you know people want to do good, 
but they also need their government to coax them a little bit. Well, and I think people are also a little bit wary uh, because this is how government works, is if this truly is the shift and people move to electric vehicles, that means government is going to start losing out on all of the taxes that they cre- that they get from gas, which means then it's going to have to shift over. And there's some concern, sure, right now to find a charging station is cheap. And in many cases, it's free to park and charge your car. But I think people might be a little worried that that's going to change, that government's going to try and find a way to make up those losses from the gas taxes. Well, that's it exactly. You know, there's this consideration about what is going to be happening here. There's a lot of places where you can fill up your gas tank. Uh, there's a lot of considerations about what is going to happen, particularly with those who live in an apartment building. Is the strata going to give you enough of an opportunity to charge your car there, or, or how is the situation going to unfold? Uh, obviously, you don't want this to end up like the segue in the late 1990s, where everybody said, this is how we're going to be transporting each other, and now there's only about 200 left. So be careful what you wish for. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so you're going to continue tracking this and uh, getting more numbers, I suppose, uh, into the future. Yeah, this is, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting issue for me, particularly because of the regional ramifications. You know, there's not a specific way in which British Columbians are looking at this, depending on where you live. That is how likely you are to convert. And the things that are troubling you about the idea of uh, essentially getting a zero emission vehicle are very different. All right. Interesting findings uh, for sure. Mario, thank you so much. Always good to talk to you. My pleasure, Jill. Thank you. Well, for many people, taking a BC ferry might be something you do on a long weekend, maybe on your summer vacation. For some, though, it's the way they get to and from their homes. They're on the ferries all the time. And I have the alert on my phone. I'm not sure why, because I'm not in that camp, but I do have it on my phone. And I often get the alert saying, such and such ferry is running 25 minutes late. Such and such ferry is running 45 minutes late, which is good that they keep you up to date. But it also makes you wonder why they're so often running late. We've also had scenarios where it seemed like almost every long weekend, one of the major ferries was breaking down, causing a bit of chaos for those, again, depending on ferries to get around. Well, my next guest has written a piece about possible changes to BC ferries. And Adam Olson is the MLA for Saanich North and the Islands with the Green Party. And he joins me on the line now. Adam, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me, Jill. What do you think the main issue or the main concern, what is the main concern you have with the BC ferries in its current state? Well, I think uh, it, it, has a very, um, uh, it has a very interesting governance model in that uh, uh, back in the, through the 2000s, early 2000s, it was shifted out of government and made into this private corporation where you've got uh, the government basically being a single shareholder. So it, it has a uh, it has a profit bottom line um, rather than uh, a more holistic uh, um, bottom line than than uh, would perhaps uh, benefit people who use the ferries. And how so? What would what would be the difference when you talk well, about a holistic bottom line? Well, I mean, I think that you you take a look at uh, at, at the value of a hot highway as an example to uh, connecting uh, British Columbians, and and certainly I hear from my colleagues, you know, in the Fraser Valley and. Uh, in in Delta, but what the importance of a of a highway is in connecting people with their uh, with their places of work and their homes and the, their recreation, and uh, the same goes for the ferries. And so, when you have uh, ferries being run uh, primarily driven by by profit, then you have a situation where um, service uh, quality of service um, 
uh, as you pointed out, there's all there's a whole lot of factors that get uh, that get brought into this that uh, don't necessarily that shouldn't necessarily be there. Uh, if, if it's a marine highway system, then uh, we have a we have a responsibility as a province to be delivering uh, a service so people can get to and from their communities, including Vancouver Island, which I think they report back in uh, a few years now, 2015, maybe somewhere around there, uh, showed that about 30% of the BC economy is is connected by a ferry. So that's a pretty substantive uh, amount of, of our economy requires uh, ferries to be operating. And we, we often compare it to Washington State ferries. Uh, it's the, that's the largest uh, system in the United States, and, and there's there, there are comparisons to be made between the two. Uh, when we do that, we often look at the CEO of Washington State Ferries, which is a salary that's far less than the CEO of BC Ferries. Uh, it seems like the costs are, are less uh, when we look south of the border. Uh, what about the costs here? Because it is expensive, and anybody who knows that who takes the ferries. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, for, you know, for someone who lives on a Gulf Island or uh, for people who do business on from Vancouver Island and they have products that they need to ship, uh, it certainly is. Uh, it, it has a big impact. In fact, when I talk to a lot of the when I talk to a lot of the business owners and manufacturers here, um, you know, the, the the primary reason why they keep their their manufacturing business here in Saanich North in the islands is because of they're able to maintain a quality of life and they have em- employees that are well established here and and you know that are not transportable necessarily and and one of the biggest drawbacks is the cost of getting uh getting materials onto the island and the finished products uh, off the island it's a it's an extra cost i think i think that it is um often done uh there's some hazards i'll put it this way there's some hazards in 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 comparing uh the the two ferry systems and you know i i have i do have a lot of respect for the people that that uh, run DC ferries, they they're doing what they've been mandated to do, and and primarily, uh, like when I take a look at the, uh, the the BC ferry system on my blog, for example, I'm looking at it from a from a governance perspective. I'm a I'm a provincial politician. Uh, it, I'm the I'm the uh, transportation critic for the for the BC Green Party, and so it's my job to say, you know. Um, how can we make it so that the public interest, which is what the Coastal Ferry Act Amendment Act, uh, which we just got through in this spring session, uh, was was it trying to accomplish? Um, how do we make sure that the public interest is put first rather than a profit motive? And and you know the people at BC Ferries they they are working through their mandate, and this is the mandate the government has given them. Uh, you talk in the piece as well about manufacturing and that vessel manufacturing is an area where we can improve. Uh, how? Where do you see improvements there? Well, look, I mean, I think, as I, as I point out, it's much, much easier for us to just say, let's build all ferries in, in British Columbia. That's a really easy thing for me as a politician to say. Rolls off the tongue, sounds really great. Uh, and in fact, uh, if you take a look at that, there's a ton of benefits to uh, us building uh, building ferries in British Columbia. And the, the the biggest benefit, which is constantly, uh, which we we're constantly reminded of, is you know when you take hundreds of millions of dollars of, of British Columbia, largely British Columbia uh, local money here, and and recycle it through uh, the economy here. Uh, the spinoffs of that are 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 phenomenal, and and uh, you know it the advantages of doing that over basically doing a wire transfer to another jurisdiction offshore 
um, we can see where the benefits are. But making sure that we have the shipbuilding industry that uh, that can support that, I think, is really important. And so, like, for example, in my riding, we do, there's a, a couple of boat manufacturers. We, we build small vessels very, very well in this province. We do uh, a great job of repairing vessels. And to some extent, we have uh, some capacity to be building uh, larger sized vessels. There are other jurisdictions in the world that do uh, that, that build larger vessels much better than we do. They're, they're geared up for that. And so the point that I'm making in this is it's easy to say that we should be building uh, ferries in British Columbia. The provincial government, if, if they want to see the benefits of that money being kept in, in our region, there's an opportunity for us to deliberately and thoughtfully build. And we have this massive coastline on British Columbia to, to thoughtfully build British Columbia uh, into um, a much bigger shipbuilding um, uh, powerhouse than we are. So it, it's, it's going to require a lot of moving pieces to be moving in the same direction at the same time. You think about skilled trades. You think about uh, uh, the, the, uh, the design components of it, uh, working with shipyards. But I think there is an opportunity for us to do more than just say, hey, Let's build ships in British Columbia, um, you know, for all of the benefits, obvious benefits of, of what that would be to making sure that we're, you know, thinking through. And I think that there are um, homegrown shipbuilding uh, companies here that have an interest in it, and it will require a a level of partnership with the provincial government to achieve that. And you touch on this uh, in your piece as well, but when we talk about building ferries, there are still people that wince thinking about the fast ferry fiasco. Yeah, well, of course. I mean, I think that it's been that's been politicized, like like all every other failure that's ever happened in this province becomes uh, becomes politicized. You know, someone will in the legislature will mention the fast ferries fiasco, and then others will mention you know cost overruns at the Vancouver Convention Center. So on the other side, right? So these these um, these problems get used and they become politicized. The reality is, for from my perspective, is that we should be learning from those mistakes and not, and and not, you know, uh, casting a shadow over the entire shipbuilding industry, because in the 1990s someone got it wrong. That doesn't mean that we can't build ships in this province. And, and in fact, I think that that you know that uh, that that when we when we're saying that about ourselves, how are we going to be? able to sell vessels around the world if that's the if that's the narrative that we're or the picture that we're painting about our shipbuilding industry we have phenomenal uh shipbuilding capacity and we have uh, a much greater opportunity to expand that but i want to be i want to be really really clear i think that it's it's super important that it's done in a collaborative way with government and making investments in in uh skilled trades and training uh, opportunities, um, retraining, uh, taking a look at communities up and down the province that are former resource communities, as an example, that are looking to maybe, uh, you know, maybe the forestry industry is not, or the fishing industry isn't supporting them. How do they become a center for people to, you know, bring their boat to for repairs or small, small uh, boat yards to be uh, building small vessels? So there is an opportunity to be taking advantage of this coastline that we have that's what I'm hoping that we get to uh, in this province, where it's where we're working with industry to say, okay, 
where can we build this industry and how can we support as government support you in, in making sure that uh, you have the people to be able to do it. All right. So we'll have to leave it there. Adam Olson, MLA for Saanich North on the Islands. Thank you uh, so much for being with us. Anyone who spends any amount of time on the Internet knows that you can be inundated with stuff that is just garbage. There's some great stuff, too, but you really have to know how to weed through what it is you're seeing, whether you're on social media, on various sites. Uh, This is a story that's actually in the National Post, and it has to do with a Montreal YouTuber. Uh, She is a YouTuber uh, that calls herself Montreal Healthy Girl, but she makes a lot of really out there and wacky claims about vaccines. Yeah, she is an anti-vaxxer. But so when we go over that line from putting stuff out there to potentially causing health risks, what can be done about it? Well, in this case, it appears not much at all. Uh, Let's bring in Joe Schwartz, the director of the McGill Office for Science and Society. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Hi. Uh, You were quoted in the National Post article as well. Uh, Maybe back up a a bit. Uh, What are your concerns or your main concerns with this particular YouTuber and what information uh, she's putting out there? Well, our office essentially is dedicated to separating sense from nonsense in the world of science. And uh, Montreal Healthy Girl dispenses a lot of uh, unhealthy, non-scientific information. And uh, she is not new to the scene. She's been around for a couple of years. Uh, she makes uh, videos, most of which are outrageous uh, in a scientific uh, nonsense sense. And uh, she has uh, made videos uh, steering people away from conventional cancer treatments. Uh, and uh, the video that uh, is particularly upsetting now is one that she put out last week, uh, essentially uh, telling people that vaccines are harmful and that uh, they're taking the risk by using them. And these days, when we are looking at epidemics of measles, which we haven't seen for decades, uh, due to uh, a fraudulent paper that was published in the British Journal Lancet by Andrew Wakefield, uh, many uh, self-styled bloggers, you know, declare themselves to be experts or riding on the coattails of that fraudulent paper. And uh, we see the results. The result is is, um, an epidemic of measles. And uh, measles is not just an innocuous disease. Measles can kill. So any time that someone dispenses information telling people to stay away from vaccination, uh, we get concerned. And she didn't, uh, I know the National Post reached out to, to her, uh, didn't get a response. Um, it seems, I mean, she's not alone, unfortunately. There are certainly others on the internet uh, with YouTube channels uh, with access to this uh, that uh, put out the same type of information. Is it something, what is it particularly about her? Is it because of the amount of followers or the information she puts out there that's... that's... Yes, as, as you mentioned, there, there are literally thousands of these uh, self-styled experts uh, who blog on the internet. But not all of them have large followings. Uh, Montreal Healthy Girl somehow has accumulated a pretty massive following. And some of her videos have had over a million views. Uh, That's a lot of people who potentially buy into the nonsense that she dispenses. And of course, the question is, what can be done about this? Uh, All of her videos start with the usual uh, weasel disclaimer where you know they say that this is only for informational purposes, not meant to substitute for medical advice, etc. And that seems to be a legal uh, mechanism you know, for protection. So it's very hard to do anything legally against uh, these people because you know they are playing the game that they're just expressing an opinion. But um, if you 
just listen to the whole video, the message that you take away is that there's some sort of you know unholy alliance between big pharma, academic scientists, and the government to undermine the health of the population, and that she and her ilk uh, are too wise to be taken in because they know the truth. And unfortunately, again, as you mentioned, the Internet is a double-edged sword. Uh, if you use it properly, it is a fantastic source of uh, quality information. You know, I mean... I haven't been to a library in years uh, because I don't need to go. The library comes to me with a few keystrokes. But um, also, uh, of course, it is totally non-policeable, the Internet, and therefore anyone can be there saying what they're saying and uh, protect themselves with the sort of the legal disclaimer. Uh, So it's a a dangerous situation, and it's hard to know what to do about it, uh, aside from, you know, having our say and trying to put everything into perspective and putting out what we think is quality information. And, you know, that's what we do on our website, which is uh, mcgill.ca slash OSS, where people can read interesting stuff. They can ask us questions. We're totally unbiased. We accept no funding from any vested source. And, uh, you know, we we try to uh, put the population at ease when it comes to some of the uh, risks that are supposed to be invading our life, which uh, actually are usually not scientifically founded. And in this particular case, originally, did you go to Google or or Google was questioned as to why this was allowed to stay up and uh, and said originally that it doesn't actually violate the policies because she has the the disclaimer? Exactly. Well, what we normally do when we find that there's some, you know, improper information that is being dispensed, we try to contact whoever may be responsible. And in this case, because it was on YouTube and YouTube is owned by Google, we did contact Google. And uh, they had a response, which which was uh, actually quite interesting, because they took away the ads that were present on her uh, YouTube channel uh, accompanying this video. But they said that they have no way of removing the video, or at least they have you know, no, no reason to do it because of the uh, statement at the beginning that this is just for information and it's not meant to be medical uh, advice. So um, it was sort of a, a semi-victory where at least there was some action taken by, uh, by Google. Uh, and, you know, as you can imagine, this is a very slippery slope um, because when it comes to, you know, who can say uh, whatever, uh, where do you draw the line? And I understand that. But, you know, there are cases where the information is factually incorrect and there something should be done. It is factually incorrect that vaccination and autism are linked. I mean, that is just not true. Numerous studies have shown that. When you look at the epidemiological evidence and you compare people who have not been vaccinated and people who have been vaccinated, you see exactly the same incidence of uh, of measles. So, you know, I mean, we try to get out the valid information, but I think uh, trying to, to remove the YouTubes, which we think are offensive, is like trying to swim up Niagara Falls. <laughs> Well, and, and is it because, too, the difference being because we're talking about a health concern, and as you mentioned, we've been seeing an uptick in measles cases. This is something that can have 
devastating consequences, that it's more important to address this rather than, I mean, the internet's filled with misinformation. I mean, it's factually incorrect that, that the earth is flat, but there are still people out there that will put that position forward and say the earth is flat doesn't hurt anybody. Go ahead. Try and tell people the earth is flat if you want. Uh, nobody's going to get a disease and die because of that. Whereas in this case, that could happen. No, that's true. I mean, the earth is flat movement, which is surprisingly a very large movement, uh, is really not worrisome because you don't have to worry about these people driving and falling off the edge of the earth. That's not going to happen. Uh, but in the case of measles, uh, that's a life-threatening disease. So uh, it does warrant some action. And, you know, we're, we're trying to engage uh, uh, people to take action, to make comments on these videos. You know, the, I mean, even with Montreal Healthy Girl, you can make comments on her videos. And I, I don't particularly like to drive people to watch the video because that just gives her more publicity. But on the other hand, I think it is also important for people to know that these things are out there and then make comments uh, on it. And perhaps uh, at some point she will see the light. Uh, I don't think that she's a charlatan. I think that there are many charlatans out there who do things uh, with full knowledge of what they're doing, that they're this, you know, dispersing um, unfounded information. I think this lady is, is just uh, <clears throat> simple-minded. I, I think she is self-delusional. She believes that, you know, information that she's uh, spreading uh, is correct and that she's protecting uh, the public. Uh, But, you know, uh, just because she believes it to be true, of course, doesn't make it true. And uh, I think we have to do whatever we can to uh, shed light on this situation and uh, show that this is really dangerous information that is being spread. And does that make it more difficult or or different in a way that, like you said, this isn't somebody who perhaps is being malicious. This is somebody who just doesn't get it and actually believes what she's saying. Yes, that makes it more difficult because she sounds very authentic and uh, she's well-spoken. And to someone who does not have a background in science, uh, the things that she says are very seductive and are, are, are believable. And it is difficult to to confront it because let's face it, you know, a very large segment of the population uh, is not uh, enough literate in science and they can be taken in by this. But I don't know what else we can do than to try to, you know, mount uh, a counterattack by putting out information that is evidence based, that comes from the proper peer reviewed scientific literature uh, and uh, that is uh, spread by experts. That's about all all we can do. And uh, I don't think that we can uh, even hope to uh, make people like this take down their uh, videos. But, you know, we do our best to present the counter scientifically based opinion. All right. So we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. It was great chatting with you this morning. Okay, thank you.